Amen. And thank you, Kelly. And good morning, church. So great to be back in the pulpit. I've been looking forward to this series, particularly focusing today on Matthew chapter 13. If you've got your Bibles, please go ahead and turn there. As you are turning there, I do want to mention uh, the URL that uh, James mentioned earlier and Kelly just alluded to it. It's am.church forward slash plugin. Feel free to go ahead and take your smartphones out, go to that site. There's all kinds of opportunities there and ways that you can plug in. If you remember, we focused last year on becoming more and more a church that helps people find hope and live with purpose. And how do we want folks to, to, to join us on that journey? Well, we want them to meet up. We spent the entire fall talking about that and trying to train us as a church to be more sensitive to people who come through our doors, people we meet in the community, and we want to invite them to plug in, and that's the season that we are in right now. So please uh, go there, plug in yourself, so that when uh, doors open, you can invite people to come along and join you. So we're going to be in the text this morning. We're going to take a deep dive into Matthew 13. So if you've got your Bible out, keep it handy. If you don't have a Bible, you can either take one of the Bibles in the pews or you can download one off the internet. Um, you can do that while we're sitting here. And uh, there's plenty of them out there. I want to focus, first of all, on some of the key themes in Matthew uh, chapter 13. First of all, Jesus wants his audience to know that God's kingdom is coming. Actually, in him, the kingdom is already here. And this kingdom is a game changer. He also wants his listeners to know that God's rule requires decision. And as we're going to see here in just a few moments, there have been those who have already rejected his message, who made a decision to not follow him. Jesus has some very strong words for them here in Matthew chapter 13. God has chosen you. This is the message of the Christ. The question then is, will you choose him? It's a message that Jesus shared then, a question that he asked. It's a question that he's asking of us today, a statement. God has chosen you, followed by a question, will you choose him? Because some say yes, and because some say no, Jesus also teaches on judgment, and he also talks about separation from God. And we'll see that in the text this morning. This is not just some teaching about helping us feel good day to day. This is teaching that has eternal consequences. And so it's a serious teaching that Jesus wants his disciples to take very seriously and own it deep in their hearts. We're going to do something a little different with this text. We're actually going to begin in the middle. Matthew arranges the chronology of the teaching here a little bit uniquely. Jesus teaches, and then Matthew gives a little explanation from Jesus about why he teaches in parables. And then Jesus comes back and explains the parable. So we're going to reverse the order a little bit just to gain some insight into the nature of parables and then come back and look at the parable of the sower itself. So Matthew 13, 10 through 17, deals with the purpose of parables. So let's start in the text and see what we learn, beginning in verse 10. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Now I want to take just a quick time out. In Mark's version of these events, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus actually says to the disciples, why can't you understand this parable? So Matthew goes a little easier on the disciples than Mark does. This is a sort of, um, I know someone who, have you ever said anything like that? Have you ever seen asking for a friend, you know, pop up in social media, but who are you really asking for? You're really asking for yourself, Right. So it seems here that in Matthew's version that the disciples are saying, hey, we know some people who don't really get this, right? 
Uh, but they're actually talking a little bit about themselves. And so Jesus continues, he replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And this is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear. Or, this is a very important word, understand. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never, and here's that key word again, understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and in turn, I would heal them. But blessed are you, my disciples. Putting that phrase in there, but that's who Jesus is speaking to. Blessed are you, my disciples. Your eyes, because they see. And blessed are you, my disciples, your ears, because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So let's talk a little bit about the context of this teaching in Matthew chapter 13. First of all, the location. It helps provide some insight into why this particular teaching at this particular time. Matthew records seven or eight parables in Matthew chapter 13, depending on how you define parable, to show Jesus' response to the rejection he experiences from this generation, that generation at that time. And we see that Matthew records this rejection in the previous two chapters, in chapters 11 and 12. And so Jesus comes speaking in parables in response to this rejection. Are you with me so far? It's okay to shake your head like this in church, okay? Very good. The Greek word for parable is derived from a verb that means set side by side. Set side by side. So the best word in our language that helps us understand this is the word compare. Have you ever said, you know, it's like, and then you fill in the blank, or, or this is like that. Have you used that language before? Okay. We've, we've used these phrases before. So I, I found a couple of kind of humorous comparisons, at least I thought they were. Uh, one is camping when you spend a small fortune to live like somebody poor. Okay, I thought that was a pretty, a pretty intriguing comparison. But this one really resonates with me personally. Focus, my mind is like my web browser. 19 tabs are open, three are frozen, and I have no idea where the music is coming from. Can I, can I get an oh yeah on that one? So Jesus here is using a very unique form of comparison. It's it's hard for us to understand. It's a form, though, that his Jewish listeners were familiar with. They were familiar with the form, even if they didn't understand the meaning. Okay? Familiar with the form, even if they didn't understand the meaning. And remember what Zach and Kelly pointed out last week. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi teaching in a Jewish style to a Jewish culture. Are you with me so far? Okay. 
They may not have understood the meaning, but they understood the style. So what style are we talking about? Okay, so for uninformed Greek readers or for us who are modern-day believers who are reading translations of the original Greek, so for uninformed readers, the words of Jesus could designate all types of comparisons. If you don't believe me, just do a Google search on Matthew chapter 13. There's some really silly stuff out there, okay? There's this, this, this text has been butchered by people who have no idea what it means. They just want to make it mean something that, that fits what they need it to mean. But Jesus have some, has something very definitive in mind here. And we understand that when we peel back the layers a little bit and understand that behind Matthew's Greek text lies the Hebrew scriptures. And in the Hebrew scriptures, we discover a word called mashal. It is a term that can be used to represent figurative speech, but also can be used when the meaning in a statement is not immediately clear. So we get some insight from this in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel chapter 17. Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable, speak a mashal to the house of Israel. So in that particular text, Ezekiel then speaks an allegory. In that case, it's a sort of riddle that the prophet's audience can't understand until it is explained. And the purpose, according to Michael J. Wilkins, is to tease the mind into insight rather than to communicate a simple idea by means of an illustration. So we have the Hebrew word mashal. We know what the word is. We know what the form of Jesus' teaching is. We know the purpose, right? So we have this idea of a riddle. Jesus is teasing their minds. He wants them to wrestle with this. Now, something we realize is that riddles have actually been around for a really, really long time. They predate the teachings of Jesus by at least 2,000 years, maybe more. If we go all the way back to ancient Sumer, for example, and the Sumerians, you may or may not know this, they, they gave us uh, uh, one of the first forms of writing. They gave us uh, ideas related to how to irrigate. They, they gave us concepts of law. So we owe quite a bit to the Sumerians, even 4,000 years removed. But one of the things they also gave us was teaching in the style that Jesus ultimately utilizes here, this teaching in riddles. And so let me give you a Sumerian riddle. And we'll see if you can answer it this morning. There is a house. A person enters this house blind, but exits this house seeing. What is it? It's a school. A school. You enter blind, but you exit seeing. Now, not literal sight, right? But, aha, aha, now I get it. Um, or maybe you remember this one. This one might be a little bit closer to home. Uh, Samson, Samson, who gave us one of the greatest riddles of all time. And we see this in Judges chapter 14. You may remember that Samson threw a banquet for some of his acquaintances. And if they guessed the answer to the riddle, then he was going to bless them with a, a set of very expensive garments, if I remember correctly. And so the riddle goes something like this. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. 
Do you remember the answer to the riddle? Lions and honey. Bees built a nest in the carcass of the lion, and within the carcass of the lion, we see the honey. So this teaching style has been around for a really, really long time. And riddles, riddles make us wrestle mentally. And once we figured them out, we, we have this aha moment. And it's kind of like an ending to a great mystery, right? Um, sometimes, however, figuring out riddles takes a really, really long time. I have read the Lord of the Rings trilogy three times, and, and I still don't understand this statement uh, that J.R.R. Tolkien uh, wrote uh, about Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins said this in Lord of the Rings, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. I still don't have a clue. I mean, I've written it out. I've drawn pictures. I don't get it at all. I'm really looking forward to that aha moment. We know that Jesus is using this teaching style, but we don't gain insight into it until much later in the chapter. And I want you to note the equating of parables with hidden things in verses 34 and 35 when Jesus quotes Psalm 78 verse 2. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. So God is revealing through the teachings of Jesus secrets of the kingdom. And why does he do this? Why is Jesus teaching this way? It's because the secrets of the kingdom can't be taught. They can only be revealed. And I want you to think about it this way. Those of you who are parents, did you write a curriculum to explain to your children how you love them? Or did you just love them? Did you make them memorize facts and figures about all of your family going back generations? Did you make them write down all of the bullet points about crazy Uncle Ed, okay? And they had to give you that information back every night at mealtime. Or did you, did you just tell them stories about your family to help them understand who they are and where they came from? Here's another way to think about this, this concept of kingdom being revealed. Um, do you love somebody else's parents more than you love your own parents? Be very careful, by the way, how you answer that question. Do you love somebody else's parents more than you love your own? Why? For those of us who grew up in our parents, we, we, would, we would never answer that question. Well, of course I know somebody else's parents better than I own my own parents. Why is that? We can know about somebody else's parents, but we know our parents. There are all kinds of people who may know about Jesus, but they can never truly understand his teachings. But those who know him, they see those who know him, they hear. Let's see how it's presented in the text. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. 
And that same day, Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the lake. And such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. This is like every preacher's dream text, right? That we got to make even more room for people to listen to the sermon. All the people stood on the shore. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Others fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, a couple of key elements that will help us understand at least first look what's happening here. A good harvest would yield about ten bushels of produce for every one bushel of seed. And of course, it depends on what's being planted, but that's a good general rule of thumb when we think about crops in first century Judea. So about a 10 to 1 ratio, 10 bushels of produce for every one bushel of seed. So a normal return, 10 10 times would be a really good return. A normal return was more like 7 or 8. So when Jesus uses this 100, this 60, this 30 times what was sown, it's only possible if there is one additional reason involved or one additional force that is involved, can you guess what it is? It's got to be supernatural, right? God has to be in the mix for this type of harvest to occur. And so one of the things that I see in this text is it open hearts, hearts who are open to the teaching of Jesus, hearts that are aligned with the teachings of Jesus. These are hearts that are open for amazing harvest. Those who receive the words of Jesus and those who understand the words of Jesus, not just intellectually, but those who own his words deep, deep in their hearts are able to stand against the onslaughts and the, and the trials and temptations. And such disciples produce bountiful, more than we can even get our heads around sometimes, fruit of the Spirit harvest. So when we read this passage through an Old Testament lens, we, we realize that Jesus is, is tying receiving the word and understanding the word together. And it's exactly what, what God intended all along. In Psalm 119.34, for instance, the psalmist writes, Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. It's not just intellectual awareness. This is commitment to the core. And it's not made possible by by willpower or, or, boy, if I really put my mind to it, I can do this. It's not about human effort. This is about opening ourselves up to God's grace, opening ourselves up to his mercy, opening ourselves up to the power of his Holy Spirit. Jesus received a a very cool reception, a cold reception by many in Matthew chapters 11 and 12, but it didn't stop him. He kept preaching. He kept teaching good news. And so, like Jesus, let's let's keep sowing the seed, knowing that only God can give the increase. Paul understood this. We read in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 that that I I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but, but God's the one who's been making it grow. Jesus is trying to help his disciples, I think, understand the same thing here. 
He explains his teaching a little later on in the chapter, resuming at verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once, receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. And so church, I just want to challenge you this morning, no matter what, keep planting seeds. Here's the point, or a point of this text. There's nothing wrong with the seed. The seed's good, whether it falls in good soil or whether it falls in rocky soil or whether it falls in thorny soil, it doesn't really matter. The seed is, the seed is good seed. The problem is the condition of the soil. And if the seed is the word of God, what is the soil in this passage? What does the text tell us? The soil is the what? Y'all been listening, right? You following along with me? The soil is what? It's the human heart. It's the human heart. But here's the thing. Soils can be prepared and they can be readied for seeding. How many of you in this room this parable really resonates with? How many of you grew up on a farm or you have gardening experience? Anybody in the room? Okay. All right. About three people or, or so. Um, maybe why we're struggling a little bit with some of the back and forth. But, but I remember growing up in Tennessee and we, we would have our garden. And I remember sometimes we would, we would take the turning plow through the garden and we'd turn over these big rocks. And we'd take those rocks and we'd throw them over to the side of the garden. And next year we'd do the same thing. And every year we had, you know, seemingly a, a better garden because over by the side of the garden, what, what was there? We were growing our garden, but we were also growing a big old hunking pile of rocks. Yeah, that's exactly right. So sometimes it takes a lot of time to prepare the soil. Sometimes it takes a lot of time to get it ready. But we see in this passage, I think, themes that resonate again and again and again throughout Scripture. And we must, as people of God, church, we, we got to be patient with people who are curious. We have to be patient. And that's really one of the primary takeaways that I want us to see in this passage, even though there were many people in this audience who don't understand the parable at first, Jesus doesn't call them idiots. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't tell them, wow, you guys are just dumb. He doesn't showcase even his own superiority. Instead, if you pay close attention to the text, he calls them blessed because of what they were able to understand, what they were able to see and hear up to this point in the journey. And I, I, I believe, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that curiosity about Jesus is waning in our culture. Some of us are painfully aware of that, even as our own children have strayed away from faith in Christ. As some of our own grandchildren have strayed away from faith in Christ. So that statement, 
that curiosity about Jesus is waning in our culture. For some of us, it hits very close to home. But I also have hope because I believe that curiosity in Jesus is far from dead. I think people whose lives are in chaos look at people whose lives are not in chaos. And many of them want to know, how do you do that? How do you survive that kind of pain? How do you survive those kinds of storms? What gets you through those very, very difficult seasons in life? You see, we know as disciples of Christ, those who can see, those who can hear, those who can understand, we know that such peace is not something that can be purchased, at least not by us. We know it's something that can't be borrowed. We know it's something for which there is no, no cheap imitation. We know it comes only through tilling the soil of our hearts and allowing God's Holy Spirit to do its work. I would hope and I would pray that we would strive as much as we possibly can individually and collectively that we would be rooted deeply in God's love. I just hope and pray that we will, we will do everything we can, be people of prayer, be people in the word, be people of service, be people who want so much to just share the good news that Jesus is the Christ, that we would continue by the tilling of our, our hearts to be a place where the root of Jesus' teaching, God's grace, his mercy can just take, take root and, and grow deeply into us. We're fortunate that we have a a resident Jewish scholar now, as part of our mix, uh, Zach McCartney, you know, has spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, and he spent a lot of time studying Jewish culture and Jewish scriptures. And he and I were batting this text back a little bit, back and forth this week, and he said, you know, I, I can't help but think that when Jesus taught this, that his audience would have heard echoes of Jeremiah chapter 4 um, in their heads and in their hearts. And this is what Jeremiah 4 says the great prophet of old. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and to Jerusalem. Break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Or, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. This is not just feel-good teaching. This is not help us have a nice day teaching. This is profound, deep kingdom truth. And I challenge you, not just during our time together today, but to go back this week and to plumb the depths of the Scripture again and again and again so that you... Even as Jesus challenged his audience in that particular day at that particular time to do, that you will till the soil of your heart again and again and again so that his word can take root there. And so when the challenges and the difficulties of life come your way, you will be able to withstand. Not because of your effort, but because of what Christ Jesus has done. There's also a practical reality, an outcome that results when people of God choose to go deep. And that is deep people, deep disciples, they make great churches. 
the kind of churches I believe that can bring calm to chaos. It can bring the shalom of God into a very disruptive world. One of my favorite authors is Richard Foster. He wrote a book many years ago called The Celebration of Discipline. It's one of those books that as you read it helps till the soil of your heart. But Foster made this observation in the very first paragraph of his book. He says, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or of gifted people, but for deep people. And I pray we'll choose to be those kind of people, not just folks who hear the word of the Lord, but own it deep, deep in our hearts. And I believe, I truly believe that people will be drawn to Christ when they see Christ living in us. We're going to share a song together this morning. It may be that you need prayer this morning. Maybe you've just been living the shallow life and you've seen the results that it's brought. Uh, I'll be down front. Some of our elders will be in the back. You can just turn to the person beside you and say, hey, would you pray with me even as we sing this song together? Uh, And possibly this morning we have someone here who wants to be baptized. I don't know what's on your heart. But if it's something you want to share with the person in the pew, or if you'd like to speak to one of the ministers of the elders, we'll be around the perimeter of the room. Church, let's stand together this morning. Let's sing to our Lord.